Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I intend to cover Colossians 1, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to give this section an unorthodox title, The Gospel Bears Fruit and the Colossians Bear Fruit. So we're going to be talking about bearing fruit. Now the first section of Colossians has a lot of exhortations. It's kind of hard to come up with one common theme to give it a common title, actually. But what we're going to do is we go through here, we're going to see some common Christian virtues listed like hope, joy, peace, that kind of thing, and faith, hope, and love. And what I'm going to do is try to associate those Christian virtues and show how Paul puts them together in other scriptures that he writes. Before we do that, we're going to give, we're going to look at a short introduction to the book just to get some context here. The author, of course, is Paul. Anybody in the early church who spoke of its author in early church history, the early church fathers, they all say it was Paul. Nobody doubts that. The date is about AD 60. Paul is in prison in Rome. This is after the third journey. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians and then in 55, and then he shortly thereafter he went to Corinth on his way back to Jerusalem at the end of the third journey, so roughly around 55. He was back in Jerusalem, and then or say 57 or so, he was in Jerusalem. In 57, he was arrested in Jerusalem. A couple of years in Caesarea, 59, he take he journeys to Rome between 59 and 60. And so he's under house arrest here. Most people seem to think it was house arrest. It might have been a little worse. But anyway, he was under arrest in Rome starting in verse 60. And so at the beginning of this imprisonment, he wrote the letters of Colossians, this letter, and also Ephesians and also Philemon, and also Philippians, the prison epistles. Now, this is Paul's first imprisonment at Rome, assuming that if you believe there were two imprisonments, that's debated, but this was his first imprisonment at Rome, and he spent two years under house arrest there in Rome. We can read about that in Acts 28, 16-31, where Paul gathered the Roman Jews together and told about what had happened to him. Now, the town of Colossae, where Paul was writing, if you look at a map, which I would encourage you to do so, you really can't understand what the apostles were doing until you you know the map. Look at the map of Anatolia, present-day Turkey, what the Romans called Asia Minor. If you see Ephesus on the coast, or better than that, Miletus on the coast where Paul stopped on the third journey on the way back to talk to the Ephesian elders. If you look at Miletus, you see that there's a valley that runs up that surrounds the Meander River, from which we get the term meander because the river wanders and we meander. You go up the valley with that river and you go into the coast about 120 miles, 100 miles or so along the river meander. And then there's a little river that branches off, a tributary of the Meander River. It branches off and goes, and that Meander River is running almost due east. And then running southeast, off of that Meander River, you have the Lycus River. Then the Lycus River, as it goes through its valley, it splits the towns of Hierapolis to the north and Laodicea to the south. Laodicea being the famous town mentioned in the lukewarm church mentioned in Revelation. The Lycus River goes between Hierapolis and Laodicea, and then it gets to Colossae. So that's where Colossae was. It was on the east-west route between Ephesus and the Euphrates River, so it was a very important town for trade several hundred years before Paul wrote this letter. However, at the time of the letter, it was only a second-rate market town. It was suppressed long ago by Laodicea and Hierapolis, probably because those two cities were closer to the 
that owned the Lycus River closer to the Meander so it could get to the Meander River. A, a merchant could get to the Meander River qu quickly, more quickly than from Colossae. The city was actually destroyed by an earthquake shortly after this letter was written, according to Eusebius, the church historian from Caesarea. The modern site is occupied by a Turkish city named Konos. What, can, what do we know about the church at Colossae? It had been started by Epaphras. Epaphras had been converted during Paul's two-year stay at Ephesus on the third journey, where Paul stayed there teaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, Acts chapter 19. Epaphras, after having been converted, went home to Colossae, started a church there. The church became a target of heretical attack, and that caused Epaphras, worried, to go to Rome to see Paul to see what he could do about it. And as a result, Paul responded with this letter to the Colossians. Now, the Colossian church was probably responsible for the churches at Laodicea and Hierapolis, the two cities that I mentioned just to the north of Colossae. Those two cities were primarily Gentile, most likely, just like the Colossian church was most likely Gentile. Now, what was this Colossian heresy that got Epaphras upset enough to go see Paul in Rome? Well, in general, we can say it had Jewish elements and it had Gnostic elements, so I'm going to call it Jewish Gnosticism. Here are the main doctrinal points of the heresy, first of all ceremonialism. The heretics had strict requirements about what food you could eat and what drink you could drink, what religious festivals you should attend, and you need to get circumcised. Of course, there's the Jewish legalism in there. Asceticism, that means you can't enjoy sleep, food, and sex. I don't know why anybody would ever attach themselves to such a doctrine, but it was widespread during the ancient world, not so much now. They worshipped angels, typical Gnostic type stuff, angels who give you the password to get through the seven levels to get to the supreme God. And speaking of angels, they worshiped those angels that they had to go through to get the secret password, to get the gnosis, to get up to the supreme God, the demiurge, I think they called him. And, of course, when you worship angels, you, you deprecate Christ. Christ is not important for salvation. It's the knowledge of how to get to this, how to get through these angel, through these angels. The knowledge is more important. And, of course, the, these angels are really demons, the angels of light. And it was a Gnostic heresy. They emphasized secret knowledge that only the initiated could get. Come follow me, and I'll tell you the secret knowledge for your salvation. Forget about Jesus. And they also relied on human wisdom and tradition. This Gnostic, these Gnostic cults had lots of past behind them. So, you see, it was a very serious heresy that Epaphras and Paul had to deal with. The purpose and theme of the letter thus follows easily. The purpose was to refute the Jewish Gnostics. Now, we can begin now with verse 1, which reads this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, an apostle of Christ Jesus, can be read one of two ways. It could be Paul is an apostle who tells about Jesus. He's an apostle of Jesus because he's telling about Jesus. Or it could be Paul is an apostle who was sent out by Jesus. He was an apostle of Jesus because he was sent out by Jesus. Actually, it could be both. I don't think it really matters. The point is, is that Jesus sent him out. Jesus, as opposed to these stupid Gnostic heretics. So Paul has to start out with an affirmation of his authority, just like he kind of did with the Corinthians, too. And they, people are always trying to knock down Paul. Why? Because Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, and people in the devil who hates Jesus finds people who want to serve the devil, and they start knocking down Paul's authority, just like liberal Protestants do today. Oh, that's just an opinion of Paul. That's not really scripture. It doesn't matter. Only Jesus. Paul didn't say anything, or Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality, so it's okay. But Paul, he did. Well, he was screwed up. That sort of nonsense that goes on, it was going on back then, too. 
Paul associates Timothy with him. He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. God's will means that's what God wants. God wanted him to be an apostle. And Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy is probably the amanuensis, possibly the amanuensis of Colossians. He did not write Colossians, but Paul associates him with him, associates Timothy with him in the salutation. The way we know that Paul is really the sole author and not Timothy, because Paul constantly uses I instead of we. For example, in Colossians 4.18, he says, This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Remember my imprisonment. Well, he doesn't use the word I there, but he says, I'm writing this in my own hand, Paul. So it's Paul that wrote this letter, not really Timothy. But why was Timothy mentioned? Well, as John Gill says, it, Timothy was a fellow laborer. He was very well trusted by Paul ever since the second missionary journey all the way to the imprisonment at Rome. Timothy was constantly with Paul or being sent out by Paul somewhere as a messenger. For example, when he was sent out from Ephesus to, Corinth, to the Corinthians once on the third journey, perhaps Timothy was known to the Colossians. The fact that Timothy agreed with Paul had added weight to Paul's argument, and maybe he was Paul's amanuensis. So that's why Paul would mention Timothy. Now, when had Timothy been with Paul? Paul was a constant companion with Timothy. Timothy was with Paul from the beginning of the second journey when Paul picked him up at Lystra or Derby, somewhere in that area, and then took him with him on to Troas through Galatia. And then from then on, Timothy was with Paul. Now, here's an interesting speculation by Jameson Fawcett and Brown as to how that it was possible that Paul and Timothy had any connection with the Colossian church. They had never been there. They had never seen the Colossian church. However, say Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, on the second journey, when Paul and Timothy were passing through Phrygia, and if you look at the map, Pisidian Antioch was a town that they stopped in, and that was the westernmost town that's mentioned there before you get all the way up to Troas in the northwestern corner of Anatolia. And on that path between Pisidian, Antioch, and Troas, they traveled through Phrygia, north of Colossae. Colossae was also on the, in Phrygia on the eastern edge of it. Now, if you look at the map, it, we don't know exactly where Paul and Timothy traveled as they went from Pisidian, Antioch, to Troas, but they went somewhere to the north of Colossae, but I figure it's about 200 miles or so, looking at the map. On the first journey, Paul traveled without Timothy, he went to Pisidian Antioch. That's about 200 miles due east of Colossae. Well, if you go from Pisidian Antioch to Troas, you're going north. Colossae's not on the way. So I don't think that Paul and Timothy would have had a chance to meet somebody from Colossae. It's possible, but I don't know how likely that is. I don't know why they speculate that. I think it's much easier to think that the church got started by Epaphras and the connection between the Colossian church and Paul was when Paul was at Ephesus on the third journey where he stayed for two years teaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, he had converted Epaphras, or at least he sent Epaphras to Ephesus, excuse me, to Colossae, and Epaphras had started the church in Colossae. Now we know from the, Paul's letter to Philemon, who lived in Colossae, that there were other saints at Colossae that Paul knew. For example, Epaphras, who we just mentioned, also Philemon, of course. Paul sent Onesimus, Philemon's slave, back to Philemon. And then there was Archippus and Epaphras, Aphia, who were probably married and in whose church the church, in whose home the church at Colossae met. We read that in the salutation to Philemon, Philemon 1-2, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier. And we don't know that they're married, but we can easily speculate that they were because it was to the church that met in their home. All right, so we finished verse 1. Let's go to verse 2 now. 
in Colossians 1, and we'll read verses 2 through 6. To the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it, and recognize God's grace in the truth. Paul addresses the saints in Christ at Colossae. Of course, a saint is a holy one. That's what the word means. It it means one who is sanctified, separated from the world, and consecrated, devoted to God. The NIV has, to the holy and faithful brothers at Colossae, which is a good way to put it. That word faithful, faithful brothers, this apparently is a trait that Paul highly valued. Let's look at the scriptures in Colossae, which mentioned faithfulness. Colossians the, the scriptures in Colossians, which mentioned faithfulness. Colossians 1, 7. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He is a faithful servant of the Messiah. Colossians 4, 7. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful servant and fellow slave. Colossians 4, 9. He is with Onesimus, our a faithful and dearly loved brother. Paul liked people who were loyal. I imagine it probably vexed his soul when Demas left him. If you recall that unfortunate incident, Paul liked people who stayed faithful to him. They're trustworthy. Nothing better than a faithful brother who'll stick with you even when you screw up or when things go bad. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3, we always thank God. The we, of course, is Paul and Timothy. We always thank God. That means regularly, of course, as a matter of habit, not 24-7, not every second of the day. That's impossible. But it means we regularly, habitually thank God for you, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this relationship with Jesus is described by a family metaphor. Of course, God did not give birth to Jesus. That would be the Arian heresy of some sort. But what are the points of comparison between a father and the son? A father is in charge of the household. Likewise, God directs God the Son. God the Father directs God the Son. This is the so-called economic trinity when Jesus was on earth, at least. When he was on earth, whatever the Father did, he did. He was constantly, this is especially in John chapter 5, he does nothing unless the Father directs him and so forth. Some people take that even further and say even in the eternal trinity, not just when Jesus is on earth, but also in heaven, now that God the Father directs God the Son, and some people think that's a horrible heresy to say the eternal subordination of the Son is just horrible. I heard a podcast with these people were about to get their intestines tied up in a knot over these people that were teaching such heresy. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not competent to discuss that situation yet, but we do know there is subordination of the Father and the Son at some point, at least in the incarnation. So there you go. Father and Son, there's your connection. Now in verse 4, Paul says, we always thank God. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. How did they hear of their faith in Christ Jesus? Probably through Epaphras, who was the messenger between Paul and the Colossian church. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Of course, faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The proof is what is not seen or the substance of what is hoped for, depending on your translation. Now, it's interesting here, in this section... Verses 4 through 6, Paul is going to mention faith, hope, and love. These are the three great Christian virtues. Let me point that out to you again. 
For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, there's faith, and of the love you have for the saints, there's love, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, verse 5, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, there's hope. Faith, love, and hope. Well, faith is the essence of things not seen. Hope is when you know something that hasn't happened yet in the future. It's really a subset of faith. You believe it when you don't see it, but it's a belief about a future thing that hasn't happened yet. And love is not just an emotion. It's action. It's sacrifice for the loved one. So faith, hope, and love. Easy to define. Difficult to practice, of course. But let's look at, and it's amazing how many other scriptures there are where Paul does this. He puts those three together. I've got six scriptures. Romans 5, 2 through 5 is the first one. We have also obtained access through him by, by faith, there's faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he drops down to verse 5, endurance produce, produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. There's hope again. This hope will not disappoint because God's love has been poured out in our hearts. There's faith, hope, and love. First Corinthians, Corinthians 13, 13, this is the one that's well known. Now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love are put directly together. Galatians 5, 5 through 6, verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision eclipses is anything. What matters is faith working through love. So there's faith, hope, and love in three verses in Galatians 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, and hope. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 But since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put the armor of faith and love on our chest and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. Faith, love, and hope together right in one verse. Now this verse is not by Paul. It's by the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 10.22-24 Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean. Verse 23 Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 24, and let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Faith, hope, and love tied tightly together in Paul's mind. So that ought to tell us how important that is. And it really is because and faith and hope are really two aspects of the same thing. There's so much that we need that we can't see, so much that we want that we can't see. Let me back up to verse 3 in our chapter here, Colossians 1, verse 3. Paul says, we always thank God now, thankfulness is something that Paul always encourages. There's only one of his letters that do not begin with praise, thankfulness to God, praise to God. That's the letter of Galatians, probably because Paul was so upset with the Galatians for being such legalists. But thanks is an important theme all through Paul's letters, and right here in Colossians also. I have four scriptures in which he mentions thankfulness to the Father. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Colossians 2, 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. Gratitude is thankfulness. Colossians 3, 15 through 17, and let the peace of the Messiah to which you also were called in one body control your hearts. Be thankful. Paul just tells him as a command. It's an imperative. Be thankful because of the peace of the Messiah. Verse 16, Colossians 3, let the message about the Messiah drill richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it. 
with thanksgiving. So thanksgiving should be a a fundamental element of our prayers to God. You know, most of the time we say, God, give us this, give us this, I need this, help, help, help. That's fine. But your prayers ought to always be accompanied with, thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. Starting with the fact that he saved you from hell. That ought to be the fundamental thing one gives thanks for. Let's finish up this section, the discussion of verses 2 through 6 in Colossians 1, talking about, well, we're not going to finish it up. We've got some more to go. Talking about hope reserved for you in heaven. Hope, as the NIV Study Bible says, is the confident expectation, the firm assurance that something in the future will occur, as I've already mentioned. It is not wishful thinking, as the NIV Study Bible points out. It's not the terms wish and hope both refer to the future. But if you say I wish it would, I wish it would be so, means you kind of would like it to be so, but you don't really think it's going to happen. But hope, mostly in English, means and in Greek, definitely. It means you know it's going to happen in the future. For example, you know you're going to go to heaven when you die. I have a hope in Christ. It doesn't mean I hope in the sense of I wish it would be so that I have eternal life. No, you hope. You have a confident expectation that you'll have it, eternal life. Here's some other scriptures that Paul wrote. Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope. Blessed means that which brings happiness. And hope means a confident expectation of the future. What is that blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul had no doubt that Jesus is going to return again. Galatians 5, 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, the confident expectation that righteousness will be obtained. That hope is reserved for the saints up in heaven, reserved for the Colossians in heaven. Reserved means laid up where it has no chance of being lost. Here's another scripture that Paul says about reservation. 2 Timothy 4.8, There is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness. Reserved for Paul means laid up where there is no chance of it being lost. So you see the confidence about the future that Paul's talking about. This hope that's reserved in heaven, in verse 5, the Colossians had heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. They had already heard the gospel. Verse 6, which has come to you. How did it come to them? Through the labors of Paphras, as John Gill says, and that's, what I, that's how I think they heard the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So here Paul says that in the whole world, which is the Roman Empire, the gospel was spreading. The gospel has spread to every quarter of the Roman Empire in the three decades since Pentecost, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Now, Paul loves to talk about the spread of the gospel, Let's look at verse 23 in chapter 1 and some other verses in Romans where he talks about the spread of the gospel. Colossians 1:23. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, which of course means the Roman Empire because the gospel hadn't spread yet to America and to China and so forth, to Antarctica, to Australia, those Places were either uninhabited or hadn't heard the gospel yet, but as far as the known world at the time of the Roman Empire, the gospel had been proclaimed everywhere. Romans 1.8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. And of course the world there means the Roman Empire. Romans 10.18, but I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the inhabited world. That's the Roman Empire. Romans 16:19 the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Paul doesn't say who everyone was, but he means everybody. Everybody's hearing about the faith of the Romans because the gospel is spreading. 
Now, why does Paul emphasize this, the gospel's going out in all the world? He's using that as an argument against the false teachers at Colossae. He's showing that the knowledge of the gospel was everywhere. It's not just secret knowledge tied up into the narrow little minds of the Colossian heretics. It was just not uh, not about knowledge that you had to go get, gnosis, knowledge that you had to go get by sucking up to these false teachers. No, this knowledge of the gospel was all over the world. It had been preached. So don't listen to these guys. We go now to Colossians 1, verses 7 through 8. You learned this from Epaphras. You learned what? That the hope was reserved for the Colossians up in heaven and the, and the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and so forth. In other words, the basic gospel message they had heard through Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He is a faithful servant of the Messiah on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Now, we've already mentioned Epaphras. He was a native of Colossae. How do we know that, by the way? Because of Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, one of you, that means he was a Colossian, a slave of Jesus Christ, he greets you. Epaphras was also an evangelist in the nearby cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis, which is just to the north of Colossae. Colossians 4.13 says this, For I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. So Epaphras was an apostolic worker who worked in more than one place, more than just Colossae. Paul loved and admired this brother. Philemon 1.23 says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you and greets you. Now, Epaphras was probably not arrested in Asia Minor where he was working. He probably had voluntarily come to Rome to help Paul in his imprisonment, and that's why Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. I don't know whether he would got, he got arrested, too, for being a Christian. It might be Paul calls him a fellow prisoner because he's with him in, under his house arrest and staying with him in his house. I don't know. But we do know that Epaphras was with Paul at Rome. And he was an evangelist that started, probably, he was an evangelist in the Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis region, let's put it that way. And he most probably started the church at Colossae. His name, by the way, is a shortened form of Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus comes, has within it the word Epaphrodite. He was the Greek goddess of love. Love is, in a ironic sense, is actually lust, really, if you study the history of Epaphrodite. She is the Greek version of Astarte. The same goddess, the the Phoenician goddess of lust, from which we some people think get the term Easter. You know, Astarte egg, excuse me, Easter eggs of Aphrodite. It all comes from that same idea that was spread all over the ancient Near East. Well, Epaphroditus has apparently short shortened his name, probably to show he was a convert from paganism. So instead of Epaphroditus, he was Epaphras. He is not the Epaphroditus of Philippians. The same Epaphroditus who carried the Philippian letter to Philippi from Rome. Paul calls Epaphras his fellow slave in verse 7. Paul didn't exalt his office of apostleship over Epaphras, who was not an apostle, says John Gill. However, I would point out Epaphras really was an apostle. He wasn't a revelation-receiving apostle like Paul, but he was a church-planting apostle because he worked in Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae. So he was an apostle too, although he's not named as such. He was a little a apostle. And Paul says that Paul, that Epaphras in Rome has told Paul all about the Colossians' love in the Spirit. That could either be love for Paul, it could be love for each other, love for God. But whatever it was, it was spiritual love, love in the Spirit. It takes the Spirit to distinguish our love from natural love. Of course, human beings love one another, but there's nothing like the Christian love. 
The Holy Spirit is the source of all Christian love. We care for our brothers and sisters. It's extraordinarily important that we do. The mark of the Christian is love. Colossians 1, 9 through 10. Paul continues, For this reason also, since the day we heard it, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. Now notice how many times he mentions knowledge in these three, in these two verses. Be filled with the knowledge of his will, and all wisdom, wisdom and knowledge are close. Knowledge, wisdom, bearing fruit, growing in the knowledge of God. There's a reason for that. He's fighting the Gnostics there in Colossae who are always talking about knowledge, knowledge, secret knowledge, esoteric knowledge. But Paul emphasizes knowledge of God. And that, by the way, is not intellectual knowledge. That's personal knowledge. You don't know about your wife. You know your wife. Big difference. Paul says that he hadn't stopped praying for the Colossians. Paul liked to say that, Ephesians 1, 15 through 16, he says to the Ephesians, This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you. Now notice in that phrase, that those two verses in Ephesians 1, Paul starts praying because good things have happened. He's heard about their love for all the saints and says, Oh, I'm, thank, I'm praising God, giving thanks for that. And here also in Colossians, he says, For this reason also... He hasn't stopped praying. What reason? These are good reasons. It could be their love for the apostle and his companions. It could be their love for all the saints, because he talked about their love in Christ Jesus in the previous verse, verse 8. It could be talking about the good hope they had reserved for them, the hope of eternal happiness. Because of that, Paul prays for them all the time. But Or it could be because they professed the gospel that Paul prays for them for this reason. Whatever that reason was, it was something good. So that shows that when we have something good happen to us, we need to thank God for it and don't stop praying. You know, it's, there's a lot of reasons that we can stop praying. Things are going so good we don't need to pray. Or go, things are going so bad we're too depressed to pray because we think that the answer's not coming fast enough. No, we don't stop praying for any reasons, good, bad, or indifferent. We just keep praying. We don't stop praying. And that doesn't mean, of course, 24-7. That means on an habitual, regular basis. I just talked to... Someone I led to the Lord about five, six years ago, I maybe maybe more, I can't remember, in China. Hadn't talked to her, and she was a professor. Hadn't talked to her in a couple of years. Said, are you still praying? Well, no. She just started again after having quit for two years. Quit praying. She realized that wasn't good. I think that's why she contacted me. She wanted to have me chastise her a little bit. I don't know. But I did. I said, you need to keep praying. I don't care how bad things are, how good things are. You need to keep praying. Don't stop praying. So stopping praying is something that Christians do. A lot of Christians do it when things don't go right. I, I would suggest, for a matter of free advice here, don't ever do that. Keep praying. Now notice that what they are praying for, for the Colossians, Paul and Timothy, that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of God's will, God's will, what God wants. And, of course, I'm sure that Paul is talking about what God wants for the Colossians. There's nothing wrong with praying about what's God's will for your life because you just don't know. The future is totally unknown to all human beings, and nothing ever works out like you think it's going to. So you better pray for God's will for him to direct you. And all wisdom and spiritual understanding, spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding, revealed through the Holy Spirit. And if you think, well, I don't understand how that works. Well, practice makes perfect. If you want to see your brain enlightened by the Holy Spirit, just ask him to do it. And then after a while, you'll understand it and say, okay, I might not be able to explain in words how God's directed me, but he's doing it. He's also praying in verse 10, he and Timothy, that you Colossians may walk worthy of the Lord, just like he 
exhorted the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, our calling is that of a redeemed saint, a holy one, separated from the world, consecrated and devoted to God. But that doesn't mean you, have, you can walk like your calling. You can go out and rob a bank if you want. And thus the exhortations to walk in the manner of which you've been called to be fully pleasing to him, that shows that it is possible to be pleasing to God. This is a good verse for those who are always self-condemned and think that God never loves them and doesn't like them because they're not good enough. No, you can be fully pleasing to God. You can bear fruit in every good work. That just goes to show that salvation by grace through faith does not preclude doing good works. We're not saved by good works, but we bear fruit after we're saved. Fruit is not the root of our salvation excuse me, good works is, are not the root of our salvation, but good works are the fruit of our salvation. And last of all, Paul prays that they grow in the knowledge of God. That means the personal knowledge of God. You can know God, the creator of the universe. You can know him, just like you know your good friends, your brothers, your wife, your kids, whatever. You can know God. This knowledge of God, of course, knowledge of God, of course, is opposed to the esoteric, worthless knowledge of the Gnostic heretics at Colossae. Jameson Fawcett Brown says there seems to be some defect in regard to the Colossians with regard to knowing God's will, to knowing God, because Paul mentions it so much, wisdom and knowledge. Well, I suspect the reason Paul mentions it so much is because he's trying to fight the Gnostic heresy, not necessarily because the Colossians were lacking in wisdom. So I'm not sure Jameson Fawcett and Brown are right about that. But let me read you four places in Colossians where Paul exhorts to know God's wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 1.28. And by the way, knowledge is knowing a fact about the future. Wisdom is knowing how you use those facts and how you respond to those facts. So they're very close in meaning. Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Colossians 2.2-3. Two, two I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. You see that gnosis there? It's Christian gnosis, not esoteric Gnostic gnosis. Colossians 3.10, And if put on the new self, you are being renewed in knowledge, according to the image of your creator. Knowledge of Christ, not academic knowledge, personal knowledge. Colossians 4.5-6, Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Your speech should always be gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should answer each person. Know, know, act wisely. And all that comes from knowing God's will. You know God's will and you know God. You don't need some heretic telling you a secret password how to make the angels happy. Colossians 1, 11 through 12, Paul continues, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance and delight. With all power, he mentions the same thing in Ephesians 1.19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe? The immeasurable greatness. I mean, I was talking to a young Chinese woman that I met when I was teaching at, my, at, at a college in China. And she'd moved to New Zealand and she was 29 years old and she's still single. And her parents and her Christian friends, Christian friends now are pressuring her to get married because in China, if you're not married by 30, you are a worthless pile of excrement. It's horrible, the cultural pressures that parents and Chinese people put on single people, especially single girls in China. And so she fell in love with a non-Christian because 
her parents approved and all of her Christian leaders approved in her Christian church there. She's a dedicated Christian, and they gave her this stupid advice, and I, I quit right. And I said, when I found out, she acted like I was excited. When she says, I found a boyfriend. He's not a Christian yet. I just refused to write. I said, I can't handle this anymore. Well, she wrote me back and said that he, she had broken up with him. I said, praise God. So I called her, and she said that I asked her why she did such a stupid thing, and she said, well, it's because it's impossible to find a Christian boyfriend in New Zealand when you're a Chinese person. And I said, have you ever heard of the expression, with God, all things are possible? I said, you don't think God can find you a Christian husband when this is the God that made the universe, and you think that's too hard for him? Well, her attitude like that is like all of our attitude. Our faith is strong, and we don't contemplate the power of God. He's strong He's strong enough to make to call the heavens into existence and he can't find us a Christian husband when we want one? I don't think so. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. So Paul says in verse eleven, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That's strong, folks. We need a strong God because we're very weak down here as we stay huddled in our homes, sheltered in place, trying to dodge those stinking coronavirus viruses that are threatening to ruin the whole planet, we better we better be strengthened with all of God's power for all endurance and patience. Endurance and patience to me are the same things. I didn't look the Greek up, but the two words in English at least are very close to it mean the same thing. You stick it out. You endure. And how do you do it? With suffering and bad attitude. Oh, I can't wait till this is over. No with joy. So be strengthened with power with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has endured you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. So things look bad now, but remember, at the end of it all, you have an inheritance. Now that word inheritance is used in the Old Testament for inheritance of the land, as we all know. As Adam Clark says, inheritance is a plain reference to the division of the promised land in the Old Testament to the 12 tribes. It's a type of the kingdom of God. So we have an inheritance, as the Jews had an inheritance of the land, we have an inheritance of the kingdom. And we're concerned about measly things like the coronavirus. We're concerned about we can't find a Christian husband. <laughs> no, man, we have an inheritance in the light. Now this, we're going to do a little Bible study on light. Then I, this is from the NIV study Bible. I thought it was very good. Light is a metaphor that's used all through the scriptures. And the NIV study Bible points out that it symbolizes several things. One, holiness. Two, truth. Three, love. Four, glory. And five, life. So that's a very nice metaphor. So let's look at how light symbolizes holiness. Matthew 5:14. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Matthew 6:23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? This is talking about are you following Christ as opposed to being a Pharisee? So it's talking about holiness. Acts 26:18. To open their eyes. This is Paul talking about his heavenly vision on the road to Damascus. He re- relates it. He says, I received that heavenly vision to open their eyes so they may return from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me, faith in Jesus, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. So Jesus tells Paul that turning from darkness to light means turning from sins to Jesus, turning from Satan to God. First John 1 John 1.5, now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. And again, that's probably talking about sin if you look at the context in First John 1. Light also refers to truth. Psalm 36, 9, for with you is life's fountain. In your light we will see light. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. 
you want to see where you're going, you want the truth, you need light. Psalm 119, 130, the revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding to the inexperienced. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ Jesus. So that's truth is given to us by the light. Light also stands for love. Here's two scriptures, James 1.17, every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, the Father of all those stars out there, the Father of light. I always, well, let me read the second one here, 1 John 2, 9 through 10, the one who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother remains in the light. So you want to lo- know that you're loving somebody? Live in the light. You want to know that you're in the light? Love somebody. I always, this is a little rabbit trail here about light, but I've often thought about this. What's the, in the universe, in the physical universe, what's the limiting speed? It's the speed of light. Nothing can go faster than the speed of light according to Einstein's theory of relativity. That's the ultimate. That's the infinite. Can't go any faster. You can't get beyond that. And I thought, well, isn't that great? The God who created light uses it as a metaphor. All through the scriptures has also said that this is it. Uh, as you go toward the speed of light, according to Einstein's theory, Time slows down, it gets slower and slower, and then when you reach the speed of light, time stops and you are eternal. So that when you, so taking that as a physical symbol of what happens spiritually, when we reach God who is light, the stop, the clock stops ticking for us and we are eternal, we live forever. I never heard anybody say that before, that's my theory. So you can take it with a grain of salt if you so desire. Light also stands for glory in the scriptures. Isaiah 61 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness covers the earth, and total darkness the peoples, but the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your radiance. So the saints are shining in light, reflecting the glory of God, the, the splendor of God, the effulgence of God. 1 Timothy 6.16, the only one who has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, that's glory. No one has seen him or can see him. You look at God directly in his glory, it'll blind you. And glory and light also stands for life, John 1.4. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. So you see what a marvelous, marvelous metaphor light is. Now, who is characterized by light? God, Christ, the Christian are all said to be of light. We'll start with God. First John 1 John 1.5. Now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And there is absolutely no darkness in him. So God is said to be light. Jesus Christ is said to be light. John 8.12. Then Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world. The Christian is said to be characterized by light. Ephesians 5.8. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. Christians are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Great little rabbit trail Bible study on light. Getting back to our verse here in Colossians. Paul says that the Father has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. So we inherit God who is light. We inherit glory. We inherit radiance. Verses 13 and 14 will now... Well, verse 13 will now take up. Paul says this, He, Jesus, has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Well, excuse me, that's He, the Father, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He, the Father, loves. Domain of darkness, domain means a 
place of rule, a jurisdiction of rule. So the domain of darkness, of course, is Satan's rule. Acts 26, 18. This is Jesus telling Paul, relating his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, and he's relating what Jesus told him. Jesus says, Paul, I want you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. From the power of Satan, that's the domain of darkness. Domain is exousia, which means power and authority. Other translations have it, dominion of darkness. KGV has authority. Jameson Fawcett and Brown characterizes this domain as one of blindness, hatred, and misery. Nobody wants to go down there where Satan rules. You know, people who say they don't believe in hell, I say, okay, you don't believe in hell. Well, I just look around on the planet Earth. You do believe that what happens, what happens on the planet Earth is real, right? Look at the sexual harassment, the sexual sin, the poverty, the war, the hatred, the family fallouts, and on and on. You don't think that there's a domain of darkness here on Earth? Well, if you can believe this here on Earth, why can't you believe there's one after Earth, after you die? In fact, the one after you die might even be worse because there's no hope for redemption from that darkness after you die. Here on Earth, at least you can turn to Jesus. After you die, well, it's too late then. Colossians 1.14, Paul continues. Oh, excuse me, let, let me, let's talk about the kingdom of the Son, the kingdom of the Lord, the kingdom of Christ. There's no reference to territory in Jesus' kingdom, but a kingdom is a, a place where, one's, where the king's jurisdiction runs, where his writ runs, to put it in legal terms, where he has legal authority and power and sovereign rule. There's no reference to territory there because if you're in Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't matter where you are physically, geographically, or spatially, but it means that you're under the authority of Jesus and also under the protection of Jesus. And here also, notice that kingdom of God does not necessarily refer to the future because the kingdom of the Son, we have already been transferred into that. Well, the Colossians were, and we are too. If the Colossians were already transferred into the kingdom, that means the kingdom was existing now. Remember, Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you. Among you, he says to the early disciples. I think he was talking to them. So the kingdom is already and not yet, as the theologians love to say. Verse 14, we'll finish up this section. We, Colossians 1, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. Of course, redemption is when you buy somebody out of slavery. If you had a son, you went bankrupt, you had to sell your son to slavery. And then you get out of bankruptcy, you get your crops back, you get yourself back in order financially, you go to the owner of your son and say, I want to buy my son back out of slavery. I want to redeem him. Here's the redemption price, the price of the slave, maybe some interest added in. And so now the son is free. And so that's a perfect spiritual metaphor because we're in slavery. Jesus pays his the redemption price, his blood, to buy us out of slavery. So we're free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. So the payment of a, of a ransom is one word. The NIV Study Bible uses ransom. I like redemption price. Ransom sounds like you're paying for somebody that was kidnapped, and that doesn't fit here. It, it refers to the substitutionary death of Christ. He died for us. The forgiveness of sins. Some manuscripts have the forgiveness of sins through his blood, which, of course, is true, but some manuscripts, old manuscripts have it, some don't. I'm not going to go into the textual problems there. It doesn't really matter because in Ephesians 1, 7, we read this. We have redemption in him through his blood. That's how we have redemption. His blood is the purchase price. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses in Ephesians 1, 7. So whether the phrase is in the original in Colossians or not, it is in Ephesians, so it doesn't matter. 
So ladies and gentlemen, we're finished with Colossians 1 through 14. We talked about the gospel bearing fruit. The Colossians were bearing fruit. The gospel's bearing fruit all through the known inhabited world, the Roman Empire. We talked about faith, hope, love, joy, peace, redemption, forgiveness of sins, the basics of the Christian gospel, not really put together under prayer, thankfulness, not really put together under one topic, but just kind of spread out through the beginning of the letter here. Also, knowledge. Knowledge of God is another theme that was mentioned. I hope you enjoyed this audio, and I hope you stay tuned for the next one. In Colossians 1, verses 15 through 29, Paul is going to talk about the preeminence of Christ, and then he's going to talk about Paul's service and ministry to the church. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.